It's been a cool series, eh? This Ephesian series, look, diving deep into the eternal purposes of God. And I don't think it would be exaggerating too much to say that eternity has been hinging on every session that we're together. Eternity not as in the future, but eternity in terms of the life of God being formed and established in the hearts of the church. So Jesus, he says, be careful, be careful how you hear, because how you hear will determine everything. It'll determine your now, it'll determine your future, it'll be the difference between life and death. And so I pray that this evening you would hear through the lens of the Spirit of God. You would hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to us here at the Rock, but what the Spirit is saying to the churches worldwide. Because the, the message of the hour is it's the eternal gospel. And it was the message of this hour, but it's been the message of the hour ever since the foundation of the world, since Adam and Eve, since the prophets, since the Old Testament, since Moses, since Christ, since Paul. You know, John, he says that he saw an angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to, to preach to those who are on the earth. And we've been receiving that eternal gospel over the last, how long? Two months here at the Rock, but really, nine years and more. So today, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through to 20. And I have to say, in, in thinking about this and what this series has looked like, I was reminded of, of the Commonwealth Games. And one of my favorite events to watch is the 400 meter. And this thing is, is loaded, you know. It's, it's the ultimate combination of individual brilliance and teamwork. Because these guys, you know, they're incredible athletes in their own right. They can all smash the 100 meters. But there's a different dynamic involved. And the thing that they practice the most out of everything else is the transition point from one runner to the next, right? So that defines whether they're going to win the race or whether they're going to lose it. Four top-notch individual athletes having to come together and compete as a team. Now that is intense. And so if the, if, if the, first, the first athlete will run, and then the second one, he, he's not just blasé standing there like, come on, man, hurry up, get your, get your act together. No, he's, he's there, he's prepared, he's running before he even takes over from the next guy, right? So you've got this transition. First runner's running, and he stretches out his hand at the back. There's all this technique involved, and he grabs. So they're both running simultaneously together. For It's almost like half the distance he's running with the other guy, and there's a seamless transition where he grabs the, the baton, and he's off. And then the next runner, he's the same. Halfway through the track, it's almost like these guys, even though it's 100 meters, they're running 200 meters plus because of this transition. And so tonight, man, there's no way in the world I'm going to be able to start from Ephesians chapter 14 
that would be totally missing it, right? So we're going way back. We're, we're, we're going back to, to what we heard. Sorry, sorry, guys, you might be having a repeat of last week. Um, but we've got to make this transition as smooth as possible because I want to be able to hit verse 14 on the fly, right? And I need you all to be running with me. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to take this home. All good? Sweet as? So this is, a, this is a full team participation event tonight. I hope you bought your running shoes. I have to say, Tess, since she's become a mum, has been rocking the mum sneens. There's a point when you become a mum and you go from wearing fashionable shoes to you just don't care anymore. Jeans and sneakers all the way. So she's, she's ready. I hope you guys are ready. All right, enough joking. All right, rein it in. Rein it in. All right. All right, back to business. Back to business. No more jokes. All right. Ephesians. Stop playing around. This is serious. All right, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm too tall for this pulpit. So we're just going to read from verse Ephesians Chapter 3, verses 8, says this. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So that's the scriptures that Greg shared from last week. And to be, Okay, all of this joking aside, I just wanted to be able to talk about it. So... So Paul, he, he talks about this administration. And when I think about administration in my workplace, if you want something done, let's be, be honest, you never go to the managers. I don't know what they do. They just kind of seem to fluff around all day. If you want something done, you go to the 64-year-old admin lady. She's the one. She makes things happen. And so she gets all the stationery. She, you know, and Paul was saying, this gospel, this mystery, it's not enough for it just to remain talk. Don't just, let not, let's just not talk about strategic ideas. This gospel has to be administered. It's got to come to light. It's got to become real here on the earth. And so this is the grace that was given to Paul, not just to preach, although it was to preach, but to bring to light the administration, the actuality of the church becoming who she's supposed to be. So there's an administration that needs to happen here on the earth, not for, just for the sake of the earth, but for the sake of these principalities and powers, these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We'll look at that in a sec. And so when you hear the word mystery, what does it make you think of? Unknown? Scooby-Doo, 
I, I've never watched Scooby-Doo. I can't relate. <laughs> Is it, does it conjure up ideas in your mind of something that's unknown, something that's hidden, something that's a bit discreet, a bit underneath the surface? Well, actually, that's almost the complete and utter opposite of what Paul is talking about in this passage and throughout all of his letters. He's talking not about a mystery that's concealed. He's talking about a mystery that's been revealed. And he's talking about an administration of the mystery that needs to come through the church. And that the church is supposed to make known this mystery to an unseen, invisible realm and the world that they live in. So how can we make known this mystery if we don't actually know what the mystery is? Bit of a question, eh? And in case you think that I'm just kind of making this up, turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're just going to start from <clears throat> verse 7. And just as I'm, sh- it's just as I'm sharing, um, oh, what a man. Thank you. <laughs> Saving my back. Verse 7. Here, listen, listen yourself for the key words. Mystery. And what he's saying about this mystery. So you've got your key words, mystery and wisdom. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now listen to this. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. What does that tell you about the mystery? For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So he's saying there are mysteries, but they're mysteries for those who do not have the Spirit of God bringing revelation to them. Now, no better way to highlight this point than a classic object lesson. So I just need one volunteer. Just one. Okay, Shirley? Just say, it's all right. Just say there. It's okay. It's, so I, I'm just going to close my eyes, and I need you to interpret my thoughts for me, okay? All right, so you, I'll, have you got 10 seconds? All right, just shh, shh. Cool. Um, do, you, do you want to take, 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 a, um, take a guess, take a punt? What was I thinking about? You sure it's good? <laughs> You're sure, but take a guess. What do you not do you not know? Can you not read my mind? Try try again. Try again. Did you get it this time? 
What what was it? No. That is 99% of my thoughts most of the time. <laughs> but in this particular instance, no, unfortunately not. I was thinking, actually, it's a bit darker in here. It must be the daylight saving. You know, it's a bit darker since daylight savings kicked in. You know, not as bright in the evenings. But who wants to know what my thoughts were? Oh, did, did anybody know that I was thinking that at that time? No, why not? No one knows the thoughts of the Sam except the spirit that is within them. Now, I need another volunteer, and I want someone to try and crack the code. What do you need to do to decipher what's in me? All right, not another volunteer. Who thinks that they have the answer? Who thinks that they can get into my mind? This is not a trick question. What do you need to do to know what I'm thinking? Wait, oh, 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 got one volunteer. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna run this through again, and then we're gonna and then we're gonna do it. Okay. Oh yeah, I'm not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, what am I thinking? Oh, well, I was I thinking? It's actually getting quite hot up here, and I'm starting to sweat a bit. <laughs> so, well done. You you cracked the code. See how easy that was. A question. What's in your mind? What's in your heart? All of a sudden, what was mysterious? What was the most outrageous and out of this world power to read someone's mind? All of a sudden, is totally within your capacity to know. A question. What would you call it? Relationship. And so all of a sudden, a mystery that's been hidden from generation to generation is now fully and totally, completely available to be known by those who are in relationship with their father. No one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, which is within them. And so through relationship, we enter into a knowledge of the mystery that was hidden but now has been made known. So there should be no more mysteries in the church because we know the one of the mystery. Are you with me? And so back to what this mystery actually is, if you want to come back, Ephesians chapter 3. He says this in chapter 9. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Does that verse not take your breath away? Because he says this, he's bringing something to light of the mystery for which ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Who created all things. I hope you're welling up with anticipation because this is a statement that God has just given you the answer to life itself. That he didn't think that it was too much to create everything that we can see, touch, feel, 
the earth, the universe, the stars, the planets, the skies for one purpose. Is that not an outrageous statement that he will create all things? And he says this, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That he has created all things, not randomly, but for a well-defined purpose, that the church would become who she's called to be in Christ. And that the church would be so full of Christ that she would make a demonstration not just here on the earth, but to an unseen, invisible realm. Is that realm even in your consciousness? Do you wake up in the morning and thinking about the heavenly and spiritual things? Or do you wake up in the morning thinking about your job, your wife, your breakfast? Because it's, those things are great, but they're not the reason that he's created all things. You know what I find fascinating is that he doesn't even say that God has created all things so that through the church a demonstration would be made to the world. Interesting. That God has a purpose for the church that is heavenly and eternal. That through entering into this eternal purpose that he has, we will be an influence on the earth. We'll be a body who radiates Christ. We'll be a body who's so one that a world will look and see. And yet our priorities are not the things that are seen. Because the things that are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we as the church have an exclusive purpose. To demonstrate and radiate the wisdom of God to an unseen, invisible realm. That's one to meditate on when you get home. And so, when we get to the scriptures that we're looking at tonight in verse 14, Paul is, it's almost like he is stunned and baffled. He's taken aback that this purpose for the church is so enormous, it's so massive, it's so eternal, it's so out of our capacity that he starts with these words. He says this in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. That as he's sharing about this mission, this purpose for the church that is so big, so beyond their capacity, he says it puts him into this posture, and he's on his knees. For this reason, I bow my knee. He doesn't say, for this reason, I do my hair. I put on my shirt. I look the part, and then I go to preach. No. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee. I'm totally aware that as a minister of the gospel, I have no capacity in and of myself to bring to light this mystery or to motivate, to motivate, mobilize, kick the church up the butt to try and get them to fulfill the calling on their lives. He's saying, I've got no capacity in and of myself. 
to complete this momentous eternal work. I am totally in need of your strength, your power, your grace, your capacity to achieve this. And just like we can't know the thoughts of God unless the Spirit of the God reveals them, it's so clear there's no way in except by the Spirit. And Paul is saying there's no way for the church to come into the fullness of the purpose that God has for her on the earth without the power and the presence of the living God and the Holy Spirit penetrating, changing hearts and bringing us into this new life that's available. So I'll just read from verse 14 the scriptures that we're going to look at. So from verse 14, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit and the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we think or ask, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful passage. And so from this passage, I've just chosen three key things that Paul is bringing to light. It's almost like the first part of Ephesians chapter 3 is looking at the macro lens, God's big picture call for the church. And in this one, Paul is extending his telescope. He's saying, cool, it's nice and it's good for you to know what the macro purpose is, but you need to see what this looks like in reality in your life right now, today. And so the three key things that I put here is, number one, we must receive this power by his spirit in the inner man if we're to have any hope of living out of the wisdom that will make a demonstration to these principalities and powers and have us living as the church of God here on the earth. Number two, Christ must dwell in our hearts through faith. And number three, that being rooted and established in love, we must comprehend the magnitude of the love of God in a real and living way. And the two outcomes, I'm giving you all the, I'm giving you all the answers before we then go back and look at it. He says that the outcome of receiving this power, of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, and of comprehending this immense love of God, is that we'll be filled to all the fullness of God, and that Christ is glorified in and through the church. Two pretty cool outcomes, hey? 
So point number one, we must receive this power in the inner man. You know, fourth, uh, 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this. He says, I'm, Paul, he's talking to the church, and he says, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to test not the words of the arrogance, but their power. For the kingdom is not a matter of talk, but of what? But of power. Interesting. He's going to test the arrogant, those who have a kind of knowledge, or think they have a kind of knowledge, and he's going to test them, not by debating. You know, that's the kind of test that we see day in, day out in the church of God today, debating, debating over scripture, debating over topics. But Paul, he didn't roll this way. He didn't even engage in that. He says, I'm not going to test your words. I'm not going to test your intellect. I'm not going to test your Bible knowledge. When have you ever heard a preacher get up and speak without the Bible? Never. The cults do it. The false preachers do it. Everyone does it. Everyone knows the words. Everyone knows the scriptures to a measure. But the kingdom is not a matter of words. If it's a matter of words, you'll be deceived and led astray by crafty and nice-sounding words. But the kingdom is not a matter of words. It's a matter of power. And so Paul is saying this. He's saying, I'm not going to test what you're saying. I'm going to look at your lifestyle. Oh. Oh. I'm going to look at your marriage. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm going to look at your kids. I mean, oh, not the kids. <laughs> they are no reflection of me whatsoever. <laughs> Have you seen that kid, Levi, over there? He's not, I mean, that's, Tess, that's totally Tessa's kid. His behavior is no reflection whatsoever. I'm just joking around, but he's saying... Look, I'm not going to test what you say. I'm going to test what you do. Because gospel of the kingdom is not a matter of talk, but of power. Are you living by words or are you living by power? Are you known by words or are you known by power? Not in the church I'm talking about. Are you known by power in the workplace? I'm not talking about doing signs and wonders. Are you known by the power to lay down your life and live as Jesus lived? Are you known by the power that when everyone else is squabbling about how to look good to the boss and how to meet their KPIs? Are you known by the power to lay down the fear of man and to live for a boss that's heavenly and eternal? Are you known by that power? Because the kingdom is not a matter of talk, but of power. There's many, many powerful people in the world. And the world will tell you that power looks like your muscles. That's what it looks like when you're between the age of 16 and 29. Your power is your muscles. Your power is your good looks. It's your abs. As you get a bit older, and when you're 48... (laughs) As you get a bit older, your power is your money. It's your house. 
is being able to have friends over and entertain them on your deck that looks out over wherever. <laughs> if I was to say anywhere in Wellington, I was going to offend someone. <laughs> your power is known by your status. As you get older, your power is known by your superannuation fund. Your power is known by your earthly things. There's many powerful people in this world. And Peter got caught up in another kind of power. And there's an encounter that goes on in the garden when Jesus is just about to be taken to his death. And so Jesus, Peter's best buddy, is being taken away by men with swords. He's, hey, hold up. That's my man. Draws out his sword, swipes the guy's ear off. And Jesus says to him, put your sword back in your sheath. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. He said, if my kingdom is of this world, my soldiers would fight. But my kingdom isn't about any earthly thing. Peter, why don't you demonstrate the power of the life that's in you by laying down your life? Oh, so Peter's living out of another kind of power. And Jesus stops him in his tracks and says, Hey, that's not the power of this kingdom. And Peter, you see this transition between this point and an act where he surrenders to the power of God. And he becomes a man powerful, not in puffed up bravado, but a man who lays down his life in humble obedience and enters into another kind of power because the kingdom is not a matter of talk but of power. We're not around you but within you. I had an interesting conversation with a minister recently and I sometimes go to this um, I'm working in the city at the moment and there's a little um, well not just a little a big kind of um, church building just along the road from my work and so where I sometimes go and write and read and, and pray in my lunch breaks when, when it's raining and I had this interesting encounter with this gospel minister and I was sitting in his you know in his pews and he, and he comes up and he asks me, oh, what are, you, what are you looking at? What are you studying? And I was looking at Ephesians chapter 2, um, preparing for my last sermon. He says, so what, like, what, you know, what, what's going on? What are, you, what are you reading? What are you learning about? And I, I just, so I shared with him. I said, look, I, I'm just captivated by this verse where it talks about you know, walking by the course of this world and how it is that the gospel sets us free from the love of earthly things and has us you know, living for the things of eternity. And he, and he looks at me and he says, oh, he says, he says, to be honest, I think we'll always live for earthly things. He says, he says, look, that's just what it means to be a human. He said, there'll always be things that come into our life that we end up loving more than God. He said, that's what makes the gospel so powerful and so great is that God covers us in our state. He covers us as we are. And I was like, oh my, oh my goodness. <laughs> On the inside, I was like, 
on the outside, I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> I looked at my watch. I had 30 seconds before I needed to get back to the office. And I said, I said, what about this, what Paul is talking about right here? He said about this power that, this immeasurable gate power that works within us and this freedom from sin and this love for God that overcomes every idol and and he said, oh, you know, you can't take Paul's words too literally. He says, Paul, he's, he's, a, great, he's a great writer, he's a great speaker, but he's, he's talking about an ideal for us to look towards. But the reality of life is that we'll probably never attain to that. And I said, oh, <laughs> I looked at my watch. It was overdue. And so I said, oh, okay, um, thanks for sharing. <laughs> I've got to get back to the office. But... um. Oh my goodness, you <laughs> know, and, uh, and inside so I was like, and this, and I'm, I'm kind of like making fun of it, but I would say that this is the gospel of the church of the day. That God will cover you for your sin. He'll cover your sin. He'll cut, and he'll, his goodness is so good that he'll forgive you and you'll go to heaven but you'll be left totally the same. And actually, Jesus came to preach an entirely different gospel. And he calls it the gospel of the kingdom. And so in this, I felt the Holy Spirit, it's, I, it was a, a moment of wisdom where I realized that debating this man was not going to go anywhere. And yet, what does it say about the spirit of the age of the church. That it reminds me of the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus and they're having this dialogue about being born again. And Nicodemus says, you serious? How on earth do I enter back into my mother's womb when I'm a man? And Jesus talks to me. He says, look, mate, come on. This is not about entering back into your mother's womb. This is about being born of a power from on high. And he says, you're a teacher in Israel, and you don't know about this life, about this power, this transforming power of Jesus that changes, that sets free, that liberates us from ourselves and has us living. You know, it talks, Paul talks about how we should receive the gospel in Thessalonians, and he says, the people that he preached to turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. And so here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you must receive, you must be strengthened by power, by his spirit and in the inner man. That is a must. Now when your gospel is about being forgiven from sin and going to heaven when you die, that's all you need is forgiveness, and to be left totally as you are. But when you see that the gospel is about an eternal purpose that God has had from the beginning of the ages for his people to enter into, that they would radiate him on the earth and demonstrate him to such a measure that the principalities and powers in the heavenly places are staggered and flabbergasted by people who have been taken out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the people who were dead and are now alive, are people who were groveling in the things of this earth and now are living for the things of heaven and eternity, 
my goodness, you need power from on high. You need to receive the gospel, not just in word, but in the reality of power that Christ walks in himself. So that's why the picture of your finish line will determine how you run. It will determine whether you have faith to see that we are desperately in need of power from on high if we are to take the first step into what he has for us or if we are to remain content being saved, forgiven, saved from sin and with a ticket to heaven but being totally unaffected and looking totally unlike Christ here on the earth. I wonder what gospel you're living in. I wonder what gospel you've received. I wonder what the sight of your finish line is. Because what you see will determine whether you, like Paul, have reached the point where you need to bow your knee. Because you realize you don't have the capacity within you to live this way. And that is the most beautiful, awesome, life-giving place you could ever come to. Because it's at the place where the seed falls to the ground and dies that it bears fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. That's the power of the gospel that saves, transforms, it heals our broken hearts. It sets us free from living for idols and gives us the power on the inside to serve the living and true God. Isn't that a gospel and a half? So back to this point number two. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. You know, the reason I think why we as a church aren't living from this power is I think because we are allowing Christ to cohabit in our hearts but we're not allowing him to dwell in our hearts. We have him as a separate part of our lives. He's part of our lives, but he's not our life. He might be living in our home in a technical way, but he's not dwelling in our home in terms of the reality of his life, his power is not our total and complete life source. You see it in marriages. Two good people, two good Christian people cohabiting the one house. You see it in the, in the body of Christ. You've got a men's ministry run by the men and a women's ministry run by the women. The men better not dare tell the women how they're going to run their ministry. And the women better not tell the men how they're going to run theirs. Two separate functions cohabiting within the same community. Christ cohabiting in our hearts, whereas he's saying, I want you to dwell. And he wants to dwell in our hearts through faith. It's not two, it's not separate, it's one, it's together. Now, 
Tess and I in our lives have had many different living situations, <clears throat> starting in our flats and our flatmates before we were married. And almost every single one of them was a cohabiting situation. A whole range of different people living different lives under the same roof. And then when we, when we were married, um, we had it in our hearts that living wasn't to be about cohabiting, but was to be about family. It was about dwelling together. And so when we first got married, we had a young guy come and live with us. Um, we were advised by so many people that this shouldn't happen because your first year of marriage is, of course, it's sacred. And you need to have your first year of marriage to live for yourself. And then once you've lived for yourself, then you consider living for God and laying your life down in any kind of radical way. And yet the Holy Spirit convicted us to say, hey, actually, why not just live for me full stop? Why do you need to compartmentalize your life and just, you know, when Jesus calls, just say, oh, sorry, mate, I've just got married. I've just bought a field and I need to tend to it before I can consider living for you. And actually the Holy Spirit really invited us. And it was, ATS, it was such an invitation. Um, and so we had this young man come and live with us who we invited not to cohabit but to dwell. We extend, he became part of our family. And yet a lot of the time, because maybe of his back, not necessarily his background, but just how you live in life, if you're living with someone, you pay rent. So in, in essence, you're buying your freedom. You're buying the right to be separate, to live separately. And that's how we kind of rolled. And so we were extending, not um, cohabiting, we were extending dwelling, but it wasn't always reciprocated. There was lots of cool things that happened, but Tess and I had it on our hearts from the beginning to dwell, to be family, and part of that for us had to take real practical form, and so we felt like the Holy Spirit had invited us to save all of his rent money and put it aside for his sake later on. And at that time, we weren't rich, but we were affluent. We... I was studying full-time, Tess was working part-time. It's not really the way to make millions. <laughs> and so everything in the natural said, come on, man, you need that money. But we, made to, we managed to make it work, and we didn't live luxuriously, but we made a commitment that even when things got tight, that money was not ours. It was for something much greater and a demonstration that was to be made. And so with this young man, we, when the time was right, there, there was a, a lot of resistance in terms of whether, I think, whether we genuinely cared for him and that sort of thing. And so when the time was right, we sat down with him and we gave him this money. And man, it was, how did I say to say? It was, it was, there was something about that act that broke me and it broke us and it broke him. That he realized that he wasn't there to cohabit. He was there to dwell. And so I just feel like I would ne normally I would never have shared a testimony like that because I think I have had a po I have been guilty of a poverty mindset which says don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But actually this thing was so divine. 
that we were so wealthy, ATS. We were wealthy in what he was doing in us. We were wealthy in his provision and the perspective and the sight and the vision that he was given to us that this thing was such a joy. There was no sacrifice whatsoever in having him there or giving him this. And so because of that, man, I can shout this from the rooftops because there is absolutely no anything that comes back to us apart from testimony of the divine goodness of God and the work that he did within our hearts and the work that he did within this young man. And that was a market in our relationship that we've been able to enter into, would you say, a quality of relationship because now there is love present in that relationship and there was a demonstration of that love. Now we loved him before we gave, but the act was a demonstration to him of the love that we had always had. And you know, our Father loved us and chose us as His children before the foundations of the world. Before the fall, before Adam had sinned, before Adam had chosen to eat the fruit, and before he was separated. And God has had that as His heart's intention before the beginning of the ages. Now, before the cross, before Jesus came along, the prophet entered into this love. Noah, a man of faith, walked with God. And he, it says he was a man of rest. And he entered into the power of the cross before Jesus actually came and died. Does, are you following what I'm saying? Now, there was a, a moment where Jesus came 2,000 years ago and died on the cross as a demonstration but it only brought to light who God was and the divine internal purpose that he had had from the beginning of the ages. And this only highlighted who he was and invited us as his people back into the kind of relationship that we were always supposed to have with him by faith. What? Because faith is the ability to see that which is unseen. And in this moment with this young man, he was dwell, he was cohabiting in our house. He was part of our family. But there had to be something that tore those scales from his eyes and brought revelation, not of the act. Because if, if it was the act, that's, oh my goodness, that's so amazing. But, not, but of being called, chosen, part of the family, part of the household from before this act took place to see the goodness of us but really our father Are you following that Where am I up to? for God so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but receive eternal life that's the message so point number three, oh, close my Bible now. Point number three, come back, Ephesians chapter three. Let's quickly go to class. Do you guys have more in you? Are we all right? Maybe just a little bit more.
point number three, comprehending the love of God. So the verse is this. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you be that you uh, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend. You know, the way of the world is that you comprehend so that you may be able to find some sort of stability in your life. Whereas Paul is saying, you must be rooted and established in love to be able to comprehend Christ. To be grounded. It's as real as gravity. That's how significant the love of God is. It grounds you. Every time you try and go somewhere, oh, you find yourself back, back at this place of love. You're grounded. You can't move from it, no matter what happens in the earth. I, I love this morning and what Brendan was saying about everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And we're coming to a time in this earth right now where things are starting to be shaken. And it's my personal conviction that things are going to be shaken more and more as we see the day approaching. And as a church, we need to be rooted and grounded, not in theology, but in a living knowledge of the love of God. Rooted, joined to the life source itself. And it's that place of living experience that will give us the capacity to go through what we need to go through. It's that place of experimental knowledge that will go the distance. And so I feel like a fantastic example of this. Tess was just sharing this with me a couple of months ago. Tess has just started studying to become a midwife, um, which is awesome. And so she shared with me her experience of starting to study. And so she said, she said, man, some people in the class are finding this really, really hard. There's so much content to get through. The textbook, there's like 10 textbooks. They're all like this thick. And Tess started to pick up the textbook to read. And she's like, oh, my goodness, I know this already. Having not done the course. And so, but Tess, while she has never studied, has entered into a kind of knowledge, having just given birth to a baby, that now when she opens the book, the book talks of her living experience. And so having never studied the course before, she has a kind of knowledge that supersedes all the academics in her class. The 19-year-old kids who are the brainiest of the bunch and yet are having to slog their guts out to understand the most basic and simple concepts. Actually, these things are not simple. <laughs> I've never personally given birth, but I've witnessed it. <laughs> Sorry, Tess. <laughs> Sorry. 
I'm often like prepped before I preach to not say anything embarrassing. <laughs> that was probably crossing the line. But there's a living knowledge of God that we can enter into that when we open up the scriptures, have you ever heard, man, these things are so dry? These things are so boring. What is Paul talking about? I just can't understand. You know, that is not to be our experience as a church. When we've been rooted and grounded, when we're attached to the life source, when we have a living experience of God himself, it's from that place. We need to be rooted and grounded in his love. And then we'll be able to comprehend. Once you have experienced and received one point that I missed over uh, in my notes, uh, right at the start it says that we would, where is it, um, that he would grant you, that we've been granted to know. We've received a living knowledge. I might just very quickly go over the last bit and then we'll call it a night. So the two outcomes that I mentioned before, that we would be full, filled to all the fullness of God and that he would be glorified. To be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you know that in the beginning where it talks about Adam being made in the image of God, you know, I've heard this verse quoted so many times, that we're like Jesus because we've been made in the image of God. Do you know that word image in the Hebrew it means phantom, like a shadow? <clears throat> that men were created in the shadow of God. And yet when it talks about Christ in the New Testament being the image of the invisible God, do you know what it means? It means the substance. So when we're to be filled with all the fullness of God, we are to transition from being made in the image of God, made in the form, the shadow of God, to entering into the very substance of who Christ was. And it's that fullness that's for us. This is why this is that the Son of Man had to be perfected through sufferings. Did you know that Jesus had to mature to be perfected, to grow in grace? If for him, how much for us? And yet this is the divine invitation that we have as his church to enter into that fullness. So Father, I pray that as your body here at the rock, we would hear well. We would hear through the lens of faith. We would see that eternal purpose that you have for us. And we would receive it by faith. It would birth life within us and would have us hungering and thirsting for the things that are heavenly and eternal. Father, I, excuse me. Father, I pray that we would receive this power through your spirit and the inner man, that Christ would not just cohabit but dwell within us, that we would be rooted and grounded in the most intense and amazing love that the world has not known but we have known by your spirit.
So, Father, let that become a living reality here today. In Jesus' name, amen.